welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It's just a humble radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me to complete his weekly court-ordered verbal excretory phase is my co-host, Frank Gaylard. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. It really does. Uh, so today's episode, Frank, is a little, a little different. Uh, it's a new type of episode that I'm trialling where I take a Radiopedia article and I read it word for word to an expert to get their feedback. That sounds very exciting. <laughs> it is. So it's a little bit more information dense than the episodes that we've done so far. So it'll be interesting to see what you and our listeners think of it. Sounds good. We have our hostful episodes, which is just the two of us chatting. And so sticking on that theme, I thought maybe we'd call this a readful. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's dreadful. No, no, you've got to say readful, not readful. Otherwise, yeah, it is a little bit too close to dreadful, isn't it? <laughs> that sounds good. That's the, a theme. We can come up with all sorts of formats that all have to end in full. Yeah, we'll be full of those and full of ourselves, maybe. All right, so earlier this week, I caught up with Radiopedia editor and abdominal radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania Health System, Matt Morgan, and I read him our Radiopedia article on renal cell carcinoma. Matt loves renal imaging, and he didn't disappoint me with his extra bits of knowledge in this area, as you'll, as you'll hear. I'm just looking forward to listening to uh, Matt's soft and dulcet American tones. Oh, yeah. He's got a voice that uh, he should be reading audiobooks, I think. Yeah, yeah. He could read the newspaper and I'd listen, I reckon. It's quite a long article, so we should get into it quickly. But first, I thought we'd play a little, a little game, Frank, a game okay. of Spot the Fake. So I'm going to read out three <laughs> renal cell carcinoma facts, two of which are real and one of which is fake, and you need to tell me which you think the fake is. So this is a recurrent theme in in the things you come up with, and you've done this at many conferences, Dixon. It's mm -hmm. finding new and interesting ways of trying to humiliate me in public. But, you know, I have no shame, so <laughs> I don't know anything about kidneys. I barely know where kidneys are, so let's go. So number one, sickle cell disease and particularly sickle cell trait is associated with the renal medullary carcinoma subtype of renal mm. cell carcinoma. Okay, that's statement one. Statement number two, around 25% of renal cell carcinoma patients develop a paraneoplastic syndrome with the most common being polycythemia secondary to EPO secretion. And then fact number three, on MRI, low T2 signal can be a helpful sign to favor papillary carcinoma over clear cell renal cell carcinoma, with the former having a better prognosis. There you go. There's the three statements, one of which right. is fake. I, I made it tricky by combining a few little elements into you each. Did. So the sickle cell one, I mean, I know sickle cell get renal infarcts, I think, maybe even mm -hmm. renal or papillary infarction or something. That seems... Uh, but I haven't heard of it or haven't thought of it for renal cancer. So I'm not sure about that one. The 25% of renal cell patients develop paraneoplastic syndrome, particularly polycythemia. I'm pretty sure that's right. I don't know if it's 25%, but sure. Okay. Um, and the MR low T2 can be helpful sign. Uh, well, clear cell sounds clear, so I'd expect it. Oh, to be high on T2, so maybe papillary mm -hmm. is different. So that sounds reasonable as well. I don't know whether it's got a good prognosis, but they probably have different prognoses. So I'm going to go with 
number one is false. The sickle cell thing, that's false. All right. Okay, well, we're not going to give you the answer now. We're going to listen to this Readful episode with myself and Matt Morgan, and then we'll oh. come back to it in the conclusion. Do I really have to listen? you got to listen to the whole thing, mate, see if you were right or wrong, and maybe, maybe you'll learn a few things. All right, I will. So we'll be back uh, after this uh, for another little chat. Joining me now in the reading room, uh, all the way from the United States of America, helping me to make radiology great again, it's uh, it's Matt Morgan. Hello, hello. How you doing, mate? Doing okay. You know, it's 9pm here, just uh, staying up to have a chat with you about one of my pet subjects. Yeah, I always schedule these to be nicely in the middle of the day for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Now, speaking of pet subjects, we are going to be talking about renal cell carcinoma today. When was the last time you had someone read to you, Matt? Ooh, not in a long while, no. <laughs> well, this is going to be an absolute privilege for you. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear this. Yes. All right, here we go. So, renal cell carcinomas, RCC, historically also known as hypernephroma and Grawitz tumor, are primary malignant adenocarcinomas derived from the renal tubular epithelium and are the most common malignant renal tumor. They usually occur in 50 to 70-year-old patients, and macroscopic hematuria occurs in 60% of cases. On imaging, they have a variety of radiographic appearances, from solid and relatively homogeneous to markedly heterogeneous, with areas of necrosis, cystic change, and hemorrhage. Mm, what a great introduction to renal cell carcinoma. It's wonderful. I love it. I was really careful to say heterogeneous because one of Frank's pet hates is heterogeneous rather than heterogeneous. <laughs> I got to say, I love the, uh, the hypernephroma and the Grauwitz tumor. Like I've, I don't know where these came from. I actually did a little search and uh, I don't think they've really been in much use since the mid-1940s. Yeah. I love it. It's one of these little things that makes a uh, Rhodopedia spicy. <laughs> It does, it does. Yeah, I wonder if we're keeping these terms in existence and whether they die out without us. All right, let's move on to the epidemiology section. So patients are typically 50 to 70 years of age at presentation with a moderate male predilection of 2 to 1. I don't know what makes it moderate 2 to 1 if there's mild, moderate and severe predilections, but there you go. It's a moderate one, 2 to 1. Uh, renal cell carcinomas are thought to be the eighth most common adult malignancy representing 2% of all cancers and they account for 80 to 90% of primary malignant adult renal neoplasms. So vast majority of the malignant adult renal neoplasms. Move on to the risk factors. So cigarette smoking is probably the biggest one, I would think. Uh, then we've got dialysis-related cystic disease, obesity, treatment with cyclophosphamide, hypertension, and post-renal transplant. There's sort of a grab bag of risk factors here, and there are some that are sort of moderately associated, like the cigarette smoking and the obesity and the hypertension. But because so many people have them, they end up being a major risk factor. Whereas things like dialysis-related cystic disease, that is a very strong association. It's like 30 times um, right. baseline risk, especially for the papillary renal cell carcinoma. But fewer people have it. So overall, it's not as common in the general population. Right. So when we're thinking about potentially screening for renal cell carcinomas? Do any of these risk factors come in or do we ever screen for it? You know, I'm not aware of any sort of screening setups for renal cell carcinoma. I do know that whenever we see patients who have a history of dialysis or the renal transplant, I do look extra carefully at their mm -hmm. native kidneys. So it's so tempting to blow them off because they're full of cysts, but that's how yep. the, the little tiny papillary renal cell carcinomas sneak by you. 
Let's move on to the association. So in some instances, renal cell carcinomas are associated with, and then we've got this broken down into hereditary renal cell carcinoma syndromes and also the non-hereditary ones. So of the hereditary ones, we have a bit of an exam classic here. We've got von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, greater tendency for bilateral renal cell carcinomas, as well as a presentation at a younger age, and they're typically the clear cell subtype. Uh, Tuberous sclerosis is the next genetic one or hereditary one. Uh, Renal cell carcinomas occur at a younger age in patients with tuberous sclerosis. And the next one is Burt-Hogg-Dubé syndrome, often bilateral and the chromophobe subtype. We'll learn about that when we get to the pathology section later. Burt-Hogg-Dubé, the only thing I know about that is those kind of ovoid cysts in the lungs in a kind of perilymphatic distribution. And then the non-hereditary one we have listed on our article is I'll need your help with this, Matt, to work out how to say this, but XP11.2 translocation. That sounds good to me. This is a subtype predominantly seen in younger patients and uh, accounts for a third of pediatric renal cell carcinoma. So obviously a very important translocation in the pediatric population. All right, so we're going to take a pause from the article here, Matt. We've been asking our guests some get-to-know-you type questions. I've got one for you here. This is about uh, how you report radiology. And the question is, do you listen to music while you report? Oh, man, what a good question. Um, I really wished I could. I really wished I could. Uh I don't. Um, I've tried all different kinds of music, all different styles, and I just find that it doesn't really work for me. It goes all the way from just being totally unworkable to just kind of slowing me down, and I'm not realizing that it's slowing me down. Um, I found that some kind of like lo-fi electronica really sort of gets me into a nice groove, but then when I look back at it, like... I really didn't actually do that much. I think I was just more sort of jamming out in my head in the music than actually like reporting. Yeah. So I've I've stopped using music. But I do use music when I do biopsies though. Oh, okay. I found that the number one best biopsy music is actually reggae. Oh, really? Yeah. I insist on having reggae whenever I'm doing like like a really tense biopsy because it really just makes it so much better. All right, let's get back into the article. All right, back to RCC. Our next section on the Radiopedia article is clinical presentation. So the presentation is classically described as the triad of three things, macroscopic hematuria, seen in 60%, flank pain in 40%, and a palpable flank mass in 30 to 40%. This triad is, however, only found in 10 to 15% of patients, and increasingly the diagnosis is being made on CT for assessment of hematuria alone or as an incidental finding. The majority of cases are sporadic. In contemporary medicine, almost half of all identified renal cell carcinomas are found incidentally on imaging performed for other purposes. I think that's really important, that that kind of changing demographics, the way in which these are Mm. presenting, because we're finding so many more incidentally. It's the same with like thyroid cancers and prostate Mm -hmm. and those other things, and it actually changes what you think of. You know, Presumably that triad was really important back in the old days for finding someone with a renal cell carcinoma, whereas it's now so rare that the triad actually exists that it becomes a lot less relevant. That's true. No, and radiologists play in a really important role to picking up a lot of dangerous cancers. And the problem is it's kind of like a little bit like the thyroid imaging. We pick up a lot of everything. So that's sort of maybe another conversation for another day about how to differentiate between things that are high risk and things that are lower risk. But you know, with renal cell carcinoma, we have a good chance of you know, saving somebody's life. Next section is paraneoplastic syndromes. Around 25% of renal cell carcinoma patients will develop a paraneoplastic syndrome. We've got a few listed here. So first one is hypercalcemia, seen in 20%. And presumably that's related to that parathyroid hormone-related protein that uh, the tumors can secrete. Indeed, yep. Hypertension in 20%. 
uh, I'm just guessing, ran an angiotensin system, something to do with that. Do you know, Matt? Real cell carcinomas can put out all kinds of different uh, cytokines and EPO, right. like you said, parathyroid hormone-related protein, gonadotropins, these all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, polycythemia from yeah, APO secretion in about 5% of patients. Uh, this next one I haven't heard of, Stauffer or Stouffer <laughs> syndrome. That's hepatic dysfunction not related to metastases. That must be pretty uncommon, I imagine. It is. And that's another one that comes from the cytokine release. Mm-hmm. And it's in the absence of metastatic disease. It's should point that out too. Yeah. Next one listed here is feminization and then limbic encephalitis. This is getting into my wheelhouse of neuroradiology. But I must say that renal cell carcinoma is not one that I generally think of when I have a patient with autoimmune encephalitis. Um, Generally, I'm thinking small cell lung cancer, germ cell tumors of the the testes, uh, ovarian tumors, things like that. Um, I can't remember a, a renal cell carcinoma case causing it. I can't say I've ever seen an indication that limbic encephalitis search for renal cell carcinoma. (laughs) So the fact that it's the bottom one on our list is probably meaning that it's quite rare. Yeah. Uh, Time for another question. All right. This is actually a question that Frank submitted. So this is, are you a splitter or a lumper? Now, if you don't know what that means, he's referring to the way in which you organize information in your your mind. Uh, Do you split things down into finer and finer details uh, or do you tend to lump knowledge together into larger chunks for learning? Well, you know what? I was going to say I'm a splumber. (laughs) <laughs> a, a splitter and a lumper, but I think that by definition, it makes me a splitter. <laughs> so, so what what kind of things do you split? Anything that I'm, you know, super into. So esophageal tumors, GU pathology, things like that. It, it's hard to help myself from sort of splitting into into little details. I sort of have to pull back. Um, but you know, a lot of other things. I realize it's probably better to be a lumper than it is to dive into all the the gory details. So I try to probably lean towards splitterishness. It's a good term. If it's in your area of interest, you kind of get down into the minutiae. But if it's if it's yeah. outside your area of interest, then you're happy just to lump the knowledge. I think that's probably a, a fairly common approach, but right. one that trainees probably hate because it means that every subspecialist has all this really fine knowledge and they are like, oh my God, I need to know everything about everything. You got to reel it back sometimes because your, your clinician also doesn't want to hear all of your splitting most of the time. So it, it depends on our clinicians too. Like some of my clinicians really want to hear all the splitting, like some of the oncologists, and, but most yep. don't. <laughs> All right, next section is pathology. This is a pretty big one. So renal cell carcinomas arise from the tubular epithelium and encompass a a number of distinct histological varieties. Just going to go through them in order first, just to name them, and then we'll come back and do them in in more detail. So, uh, And these are basically in order of frequency as well. So the first subtype is clear cell renal cell carcinoma, and that is the, the most common one. Uh, 70 to 80%. Then we have papillary renal cell carcinoma. Then we have clear cell papillary renal cell carcinoma is the next one. So that's easy. You learn the first one, clear cell carcinoma. (laughs) And then the second one, papillary renal cell. And then you combine them together for the third one, which is clear cell papillary renal cell carcinoma. Uh, The fourth one we have is chromophobe renal cell carcinoma. Then we have collecting duct renal cell carcinoma. Then renal medullary carcinoma. And then finally, getting down to sarcomatoid renal cell carcinoma, which is a really aggressive subtype. So this kind of comes back to uh, some of that basic histology, physiology of the of the kidney. Matt, did you want to give us a little brief overview of the parts of the, of the kidney? You got the glomerulus, right, which is filtering the blood into the tubules. But the tumors don't really arise from the glomerulus. They arise from different parts of the tubule. 
So you have the proximal convoluted tubule, which dips down into the loop of Henle, or the loop of the nephron. Comes up, you got the distal convoluted tubule, and then that all ends up in the collecting duct. So I just wanted to sort of mention that because those terms are going to come up um, again and again here. So the first one, let's let's get into that. So clear cell renal carcinoma. This is the most common one, 70 to 80 percent. Arises from the proximal convoluted tubules, large uniform cells with clear cytoplasm, thus the name, as well as the T2 appearance, which is very T2 bright. We'll come to that later. They're highly vascular, and there's a subtype of these called the clear cell multilocular renal cell carcinoma. The next one is the papillary renal cell carcinoma. This accounts for 13 to 20%, arises from those distal convoluted tubules. They can be multifocal and bilateral. Type 1 is sporadic, generally has a good prognosis, whereas the type 2 papillary renal cell carcinomas are often inherited and bilateral and multifocal. And they're associated with chronic hemodialysis. So these are the ones we're looking for in those patients. Actually, I would say a bit about the type 1 and the type 2. People are actually starting to lean away from that distinction. Um, I think the most recent WHO guidelines don't really include the type 1 and type 2 distinction. And they're uh-huh. leaning more toward molecular subtyping of these rather than type 1 and type 2. They found that the inter-observer sort of variability on the type 1 and type 2 is really kind of high. Sounds similar to what happens with, well, what's happening with, with CNS tumors as well, leaning mm-hmm. more towards the molecular subtypes rather than right. the histology itself. The next one we here, have here is the clear cell papillary renal cell carcinoma. Uh, and then we have the chromophobe renal cell carcinoma accounting for 5%. This one arises from the intercalated cells of the collecting ducts. That sounds cool. Uh, similar histologically to renal oncocytomas. And this one has the best prognosis. So the chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, right. although it's uncommon, 5% has a good prognosis. The next one on the list, collecting duct renal cell carcinoma coming from the Bellini duct. What's the Bellini duct? <laughs> I think it's the, just the collecting duct, another name for collecting duct. Kind of like, I think Grawitz would know. We should ask him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He knows all. Uh, these often occur in younger patients and they have a, a poor prognosis. So the collecting duct renal cell carcinomas, younger patients, poor prognosis. So you don't want that one. The mm-hmm. renal medullary carcinoma is the next one. These are rare, seen primarily in patients with sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait. No, that's a good association to remember. And the sickle cell trait, believe it or not, is actually a little more associated than sickle cell disease itself, which seems a little backward, hmm. but it's kind of an interesting little factoid. And these guys are so, the, the collecting duct renal cell carcinomas and the medullary carcinomas are so aggressive and so necrotic. People sometimes mistake them for abscesses. Oh, right. I mean, they look like they're essentially necrotic. They pop up out of nowhere. They're in young people. Like, oh, that's an abscess. That's a good point. So we'll probably come back to that in the differential diagnosis later yeah. on. And the final one in the pathology section here is the sarcomatoid renal cell carcinoma. Sounds bad because it's sarcomatoid, and it definitely Mm. is. So advanced renal cell carcinomas may de-differentiate into this highly aggressive subtype. Should we cover the macroscopic appearance, Matt? Let's do that. Let's talk about the big stuff. (laughs) The big stuff. So macroscopically, renal cell carcinomas are variable in appearance, ranging from solid and relatively homogeneous to markedly heterogeneous with areas of necrosis, cystic change, and hemorrhage. Low-grade tumors, or smaller tumors, typically have a pseudocapsule composed of compressed and ischemic normal renal tissue. The presence of a pseudocapsule is only seen in renal cell carcinomas, renal adenomas, and oncocytomas. And renal cell carcinoma is one of the most common causes of cannonball metastases to the lung. 
All right, finishing off the pathology section now, last little bit, Matt. We're almost there. It was not short. The most widely used and most predictive histological nuclear grading system for renal cell carcinomas is the Furman nuclear grade. An alternative nuclear grade grading system is the International Society of Urological Pathology grading classification. Both these systems grade tumors on a one to four scale, where grade one carries the best prognosis and grade four, the worst. My understanding is the pathologists have their favorite and their adherence to both camps, and they uh, sometimes come to blows over these. And so let's not even spend too much time on this because it's just too controversial a topic. But both of them need to remain in the Radiopedia article because there's a split. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, before we move on to the uh, radiographic features section, another question for you, Matt. You ready? Uh We've had music. We've had splitting and lumping. What do we got? Now we've got, do you use a checklist while you report? Um, yeah, I do. I kind of think of radiological reports a little bit like aviation. So I know that's sort of a common association, but I do believe it. I mean, it's in order to get best quality, you sort of need to make sure that you're checking off all the boxes and, and moving things appropriately. It's so easy to just kind of like assume you've covered everything and then you go back and you're like, oh, I missed this little thing, that little thing. It just takes some of the thinking out of it if you just run through a checklist, except except when I'm using like radiographs or something like that. You just spit out a line or two and that's really all you need. The checklist, I think, gets in your way at that point. So even for like emergency abdominal CT, you'd you'd use a checklist? Yeah, anything I'm tempted to go too fast on, I I have to stop myself with a checklist. So I I find it's useful to to break myself. And you know, if you think of airplane pilots, they fly, they fly, they fly. You think by you've gotten it down at some point, they really don't need to do use checklists anymore, but they still use them and they get something out of them. So Yeah. All right, let's move on. You ready for radiographic features? This is a pretty long one too, Matt. Let's get to the meat of this here. So radiographic features. Imaging is essential in accurately staging renal cell carcinomas and in operative planning. There are two staging systems out there. There's the renal cell carcinoma staging, TNM system, and then there's the Robson staging system. Again, both still in use, I imagine. Well, you know, I'm only familiar with the TNM staging. I really haven't used Mm -hmm. the Robson staging system that much. Now, Matt, the TNM staging is not covered itself in the Radiopedia renal cell carcinoma article. It has its own dedicated article. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but uh, just briefly, the T1 and the T2 tumor staging is really about uh, when the mass is confined to the kidney itself. And then there's some size cutoffs like four centimeters, seven centimeters, and 10 centimeters to help differentiate different stages there. Uh, When you get to T3, you're talking about extension of the tumor beyond the kidney itself into the perinephric tissues and the major veins, but not into the ipsilateral adrenal gland or beyond Gerotus fascia, and that's when you're talking about T4 once you get that adrenal gland or invasion beyond Gerotus fascia. And obviously, then we just have the typical N and M for nodal and distant metastases. Uh, but Matt, I guess other than reporting the size of the renal tumor, it's really important in our reports to be giving the, the surgeons a detailed description of the local extension, right? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, your urologist will uh, be very thankful if you can give them an idea of local extension. So it gives them an idea of what they're going to have to deal with when they get in there. Sometimes they can't partial, I'm going to say partial, do a partial nephrectomy uh, in a tumor that's involving the body wall or gerotus fascia. In fact, something involving gerotus fascia or the adrenal gland really is T4 at that point. So it changes the prognosis as well. Sometimes nephrectomy means taking the adrenal. That's sort of an older fashioned technique to just take the adrenal automatically. So I think the more common recent technique is to leave the adrenal in if you can. So it becomes very important if you think there is adrenal involvement to mention it because then they'll just go in there and take it out. All right, let's start with ultrasound. 
Although ultrasound is very frequently requested to assess the renal tract, it is not as sensitive or specific as CT or MRI. Furthermore, it struggles to accurately locally stage the disease in many instances. It's kind of an understatement. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so renal cell carcinoma has a widely varying sonographic appearance. It may appear solid or partially cystic, maybe hyper, iso, or hypoechoic to the surrounding renal parenchyma. The tumor pseudocapsule can sometimes be visualized with ultrasound as a hypoechoic halo. Although this is a relatively specific sign, it's not particularly sensitive, only seen in around 20% of cases. The use of harmonic ultrasound scanning has been reported to increase sensitivity up to 85%. Remind me, what do you know what harmonic ultrasound does? Yes, um, it's a little complicated. The fastest way to sort of explain it is a little bit like a musical overtone. So you have your first mm -hmm. harmonic, your second harmonic, your third harmonic. For ultrasound imaging, you can utilize these. I think really just the second harmonic, the other ones become too faint to really pick up. So you can use it to yeah. increase the resolution of the, the imaging that you're getting. So you can decrease noise. Some of the noise won't show up as a harmonic and you can the machine can cut that out. Yeah, sounds like you know what it is. That sounded good. <laughs> it's also a little button on the machine. You just you just hit the button and boom, you're done. <laughs> oh yeah, I can do that. I can I can hit buttons. <laughs> Harmonics, boom. Harmonic power. <laughs> And there's a harmonic button, and then there's a reggae button on the ultrasound right. machine. Exactly. That's my <laughs> ideal scanner right there. Set. <laughs> so the next thing is contrast-enhanced ultrasound typically shows a lesion heterogeneously hypervascular in the arterial phase with early washout in the delayed phase. Uh, Matt, do you ever use contrast-enhanced ultrasound for renal cell carcinoma? So we do do it occasionally, probably not as much as we could or we should. I mean, I think this is an area where the U.S. lags behind the rest of the world because we just sort of automatically default to, you know, contrast-enhanced CT or MRI. We probably could do a lot mm -hmm. more with contrast-enhanced ultrasound. When I do use it, it's usually with patients with tenuous renal function, like some of the patients who are on dialysis or on transplants. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, the next section is CT, and I, I guess this is going to be a large majority of incidental detections are going to be on CT as well as uh, a lot of the staging. So CT is frequently used to both diagnose and stage renal cell carcinomas. On non-contrast CT, lesions are of soft tissue attenuation between 20 to 70 Hounsfield units. Larger lesions frequently have areas of necrosis. Approximately 30% demonstrate calcification. During the corticomedullary phase of enhancement, which is 25 to 70 seconds after administration of contrast, renal cell carcinomas demonstrate variable enhancement, usually less than the normal renal cortex. Small lesions may enhance a similar amount and can be difficult to detect. You're sort of reading through the article, you kind of get the sense that corticomedullary phase is really the best phase to pick these up and characterize them. But that's kind of, in some ways, it's sort of not true. It's actually the hardest phase to see a lot of renal cell carcinomas on, unless they're humongous. Mm -hmm. Usually, people end up missing tumors on corticomedullary phase rather than picking them up. It's really the nephrographic phase I, I find that is better for that. But let's, uh, I think we're getting there. In general, smaller lesions enhance homogeneously, whereas larger lesions have irregular enhancement due to areas of necrosis. The clear cell subtype may show stronger enhancement. The corticomedullary phase is also best for assessing vascular anatomy, both for renal vein involvement and for arterial variation if partial nephrectomy is being contemplated. Intraluminal growth into the venous circulation, in particular the renal vein, occurs in 4 to 15 I remember this from radiology exams. They love showing cases with a renal cell carcinoma invading into the renal vein or into the IVC. Uh, so don't forget that one. 
the prognosis is significantly worse for those with IVC involvement compared to renal vein involvement alone, making identification on CT important. All right, let's continue on. So the nephrogenic phase, 80 to 180 seconds, is the most sensitive phase for detection of abnormal contrast enhancement. The excretory phase is of less worth, but important in assessing the collecting system anatomy, especially if the patient is a potential candidate for partial nephrectomy. You agree with that, Matt? I do. We probably should, I should, probably should go back and correct that uh, nephrogenic in the article is nephrographic. So it's really visualizing the kidney, so nephrographic. Uh, but you can see it's 80 to 180 seconds. So it's a little longer than a portal venous phase. But when you basically the whole kidney should be enhancing uniformly. So it's very, yeah. at that point, it's actually easier to pick out abnormalities and masses, I've found. So in some ways, this is sort of the key phase. Follow-up imaging after treatment is typically done with CT, with dual-phase imaging of the abdomen advocated to maximize the detection of solid organ metastases. Renal cell carcinoma typically causes hypervascular metastases best appreciated on arterial phase imaging of the upper abdomen. We actually don't end up using dual-phase imaging here. There's a lot of different sort of follow-up protocols. We just end up using a portal venous phase. Sort of dual-phase imaging is a little ambiguous, too. Are we talking about the non-con and a corticomedullary phase? Are we talking about, you know, a biphasic arterial and portal venous phase? I think probably can go in there and uh, clarify that as well. But I think a lot of people end up using portal venous phase. That idea of the metastases being hypervascular, that reminds me in, in neuroradiology, when we see renal cell carcinoma metastases in the brain, they're very often hemorrhagic, but they're also ones that tend to bleed at surgery. I've seen particularly intraventricular metastases. Um, I think renal cell carcinoma is the most common intraventricular metastasis. Wow, I just learned something. Wow. They enhance a lot and they bleed okay. a lot, lots of little flow voids around them. So I take great care in describing that to the neurosurgeons because they often like to to be aware of that before they go in. Renal cell carcinoma metastases are weird. Like some of them, they have some characteristic metastases like mets to the pancreas, but they only show up at a certain time. They only show up at like maybe seven years after you know, treatment, Yeah, which is very strange. And some of them show up right away. It's kind of odd how some of them appear in certain places at certain times. The next section is MRI. So MRI is not only excellent at imaging the kidneys and locally staging tumors, but is also able to suggest the likely histology on the grounds of T2 weighted differences. So the T1 is often heterogeneous due to necrosis, hemorrhage, and solid components, whereas the T2 appearances will depend on the histology. So the clear cell uh, carcinoma type will be hyperintense on T2, whereas papillary renal cell carcinoma will generally be hypointense on T2. Uh, in terms of post-contrast gadolinium enhancement, it often shows prompt arterial enhancement. You agree with that, Matt? It's all very true. It's actually one of the most useful things about using MR to, to evaluate these. You can sort of help separate them out between papillary renal cell carcinoma, which is relatively slow growing, and clear cell renal cell carcinoma, which is much more aggressive. The tumor pseudocapsule, essentially only seen in low-grade renal cell carcinomas, renal adenomas, and oncocytomas, appears as a hypointense rim. I assume that means T2. So T2 hypointense mm -hmm. rim between the tumor and the adjacent normal renal parenchyma. Is that something that you report, Matt? So if you see a pseudocapsule, you think, oh, this is more likely to be a low-grade cancer? Well, you know, I see it so infrequently for whatever reason that it just doesn't even enter my um, thought process, to be honest with you. If I saw it, then I, I, I recognize it was probably less aggressive, but I don't really look for it that much. MRI is also useful for imaging renal vein and IVC tumor thrombus and the rostral extension, important in preoperative planning. The presence of enhancement in the thrombus is also able to distinguish between bland and tumor thrombus. Yeah, I wonder whether 
MRI would be better for that than CT, right? It can sometimes be hard to detect yeah. the enhancement of the thrombus on CT, whereas on, on MRI, you can often see that very easily. Well, I think MRI does give you some extra tools there. You can use the diffusion weighted imaging. You can use the sort of different enhancement time points to sort of um, make a better guess. But sometimes it's actually hard to differentiate, but the MR is probably your best chance. Uh, Diffusion-weighted imaging is the next bit, actually. So the use of diffusion-weighted sequences has been explored in assisting with characterizing indeterminate small renal lesions, which may be inflammatory or malignant in nature. Both exhibit diffusion restriction, albeit the restriction is greater with an abscess than a tumor. So do you put a lot of weight on diffusion-weighted imaging in renal cell carcinomas? Oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I don't. Um, I know there's a lot of people adherence for diffusion-weighted imaging. They they feel like they can sort of separate the aggressiveness of the tumor app depending on whether it's uh, a lot of restricted diffusion or whether it doesn't. There's probably some truth in that, but I found that the overlap is such that I can't really use it meaningfully in a report. I use it to pick up lesions. Right, right. So good for spotting the lesions, but not for differentiating between the different types. Uh, so really, the, the T2 signal is is really important, right, for differentiating that papillary from, from the more common cell type. And that's probably the major thing you can do with MRI as well as better local staging of the tumor. Right. Moving on to nuclear medicine now. So FDG PET, unlike many other malignancies, FDG PET may have limited value in primary renal cell carcinoma, mostly as a result of the physiological excretion of FDG from the kidneys, which decreases contrast between renal lesions and the normal tissue and may obscure or mask the lesions of the kidneys. However, certain publications suggest it can effectively be used for postoperative surveillance and restaging as an adjunct when conventional imaging is not conclusive. And in some situations, such as differentiating benign or or bland emboli from tumor emboli. Uh, so do you find that many of your patients get PET for the actual primary renal cell carcinoma? No. I've sort of found that we're not big believers in using PET for this purpose here. Not only is it difficult to tell because of the excretion of FTG into the collecting system, like I mentioned here, but a lot of the renal cell carcinomas don't really take up a lot, or they, they're not really very avid. So not super useful. Well, that's the end of the radiographic features section, Matt. We did it. That was quite a big one. We made it. Yeah, we made it. <laughs> Another little question for you before we move on to okay. uh, finish the session with treatment and prognosis and differential diagnosis. So question here. I'm a little worried here. What's this? What is your favorite or least favorite imaging study to report? My favorite imaging study report? Well, you know, I'm just going to go with my gut here. I think first thing comes to my head, I'm changing systems here a little bit, but my favorite study is actually a really good esophagram. Ah, I thought you were going to say MRCP for a second there. No, a really yeah. good esophagram is beautiful. It's double contrast esophagram where you diagnose the, the uh, patient's problem immediately there with that barium. Love it. How often do you do double contrast? I can't remember the last time I got someone to take the gas granules. Um, <laughs> But how often, how very, often do you do that? You have to be very persuasive. Like, this is going to be great. Um, <laughs> we, we sort of default, actually. Everything, just because of the, the tradition within our department here, like everything is double contrast, esophagrams, double contrast, upper GIs. It's kind of a dying art, but when it works, it works beautifully. And also just to see things moving in real time, yes. like the actual, the, the bowel moving, the esophagus, the stomach, you don't really get that in any other imaging modality, do you? It's, it's, it's very nice to watch. Very pretty. All right, let's move on to finish this off with treatment and prognosis. So treatment of renal cell carcinomas is usually with radical nephrectomy, if feasible. However, in elderly patients or those with comorbidities, and especially those with smaller tumors suggestive of papillary histology, so we're thinking low T2 signal, right? 
then organ-sparing treatment can be entertained. This ranges from adrenal-sparing nephrectomy to partial nephrectomy, performed both open or laparoscopically. Additionally, percutaneous radiofrequency, chemical or cryoablation, typically under CT guidance, which can be carried out with only local anaesthetic and sedation, has been introduced in selected cases. Matt, are you using those kind of radiofrequency, those percutaneous techniques in your institution? We do, you know, for select cases. Actually, we end up using mostly cryoablation. This is kind of circling back to the idea of like describing these lesions on cross-sectional imaging with some detail is actually very useful. Now, your interventional radiologist can be able to tell like what's exophytic, what's big enough for, you know, or rather small enough for them to treat effectively from an oncologic standpoint. Um, whether it's posterior, they can see that for themselves. But where you can sort of help out is some of the more subtle stuff, like, oh, it's abutting the renal hilum. Um, you know, there's tumor thrombus. There's little things in there they may not have expected to run into and sort of change their approach. All right, let's continue on with reading here. So prognosis varies depending on both the histological subtype and the stage. The chromophobe subtype carries the best prognosis with an overall five-year survival rate of 78 to 100%, followed by the papillary subtype greater than 80%. The clear cell, conventional, this is the most common, renal cell carcinoma carries a five-year survival of 50 to 70%. The collecting duct subtype is extremely aggressive and carries a two-year survival rate of 70%, and the medullary subtype is also extremely aggressive. As far as the effects of tumor stage are concerned, there is a dramatic difference between stage one and stage four tumors. Uh, so stage one, 90% five-year survival. Stage two, 50% five-year survival. Stage three, 30% five-year survival. And stage four, very poor, 5% five-year survival. Obviously, will depend on the histology, though. Mm -hmm. And this is, mm -hmm. I guess, why the CT and the MRI staging is so important, Matt. Absolutely. I mean, this is where we as radiologists shine here with renal cell carcinoma. We can stage and really help the urologists and the interventional radiologists with their pre-treatment planning. And it makes a big difference. It's not just an accessory thing. It makes a big difference in terms of getting these patients good oncologic outcomes. A couple more sentences here. So approximately one third of newly diagnosed cases of renal cell carcinoma have metastatic disease at the time of initial presentation. Most common sites of metastasis are in order, the lungs, bones, lymph nodes, liver, adrenals, and brain. So presumably most patients get a completion chest, abdo, pelvis, CT, mm -hmm. as well as a CT brain with contrast, yeah? Yeah, well, you know, actually that is a little bit controversial too, because if you have a stage one disease, you have a really good survival rate, you may not need to get a chest CT. You can maybe get away with just a chest radiograph. So there's different strategies for all up here to try to cut cost and radiation dose and all kinds of, kinds of things. We're up to the final section here, Matt. The differential. The differential diagnosis. The broad differential is essentially that of all renal masses, particularly other renal tumors, and most commonly includes. Now, this is broken down into a list of different renal tumors, and then there's some renal pseudotumors, uh, and then it talks about direct extension of neighboring tumors. So let's start with the renal tumors. So of those, we have the renal adenoma, and then the other one is the renal oncocytoma, particularly for the chromophobe type. Both of these, the renal adenoma and the oncocytoma, are going to be very hard to differentiate from a renal cell carcinoma, right, man? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled about trying to differentiate these out, because wouldn't that be great? You have something that looks like it's a malignant tumor, and you can confidently say, oh, yeah, it's just a benign oncocytoma. To my knowledge, there's nothing that is really accurate enough 
to be able to differentiate mm-hmm. these apart. It's usually a pleasant surprise that uh, you've taken partial doubt a tumor and it turns out to be an oncocytoma. It's wonderful. So one of the classic associations with oncocytoma is the wheel and spoke vascular pattern. And that can sort of, yeah. you can put that as maybe a suggestion for a urologist, but I think it's pretty rare that they're going to take that one feature and decide not to treat the patient based on that. Yeah. So basically all of them are assumed to be renal cell carcinomas yeah. until proven otherwise. Uh, the next one listed is the angiomyeloma. Now, these will be more distinctive, obviously, because they almost always contain macroscopic fat. They usually have a large component of that, although 4 to 5% have little or no fat. So they may, may be the difficult ones. That's right. The lipid-poor AMLs can be a real problem. You differentiate them out. That's another one where you end up partialing these out, and you're sort of happy that it's a lipid-poor AML rather than a tumor because you don't have the, the follow-up. But um, it's hard to differentiate them. Sometimes people get a little confused about, well, doesn't uh, renal cell carcinoma have fat in it as well? What well, has intracellular lipid? That's the clear cell part of it. You can have fat drop out on the in and out of phase imaging, but it surely shouldn't have macroscopic fat. Right. Unless it's rarely it can when it invades the renal sinus. But usually, if you have macroscopic fat, you're probably dealing with an AML. And what about patients with tuberous sclerosis and things who might have AMLs and they've also yeah. got an increased risk of renal cell carcinoma and maybe they've got a, a lipid-poor AML? How do you differentiate that from a renal cell carcinoma? That's right. And they've got a bunch of cysts in there. Carefully. <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> That's the answer to everything really, isn't it? <laughs> the next one on the list here for the renal tumors is renal metastasis. These must be pretty uncommon. I haven't seen many. I think lung cancer is the most common to go to the kidneys. Well, you know something funny about renal metastases? They're actually really common. Yeah they end up being tiny and patients die before they explode. It's one of those mysteries of renal cell carcinoma metastases, kind of like the pancreatic mets. Some of them just kind of bide their time, just waiting for some kind of signal years later, and then boom, they appear. Most patients uh, don't survive that long. The next mass on the list is the renal lymphoma. Uh, I've seen this visceral lymphoma quite a few times. Often they've got other organs that are also involved with Mm -hmm. lymphoma. Any tips for that, Matt? Well, you hit on it there. If you're looking for the company it keeps, so if you've got large retroperitoneal lymph nodes, um, sometimes the renal lymphoma has very characteristic looks like sort of perinephric soft tissue or um, nephromegaly and some things like that, although that can also look like urothelial cell carcinoma. It's really the company it keeps. you got to look at the rest of the abdomen and say, hey, you know what, maybe this isn't a renal-centric tumor. And in terms of lymphadenopathy, retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy, how common is that in renal cell carcinoma itself to have large local lymph nodes? Well, ipsilateral nodes um, are not uncommon. Once you start seeing large bulky nodes, they're really outside the normal drainage pathway. That's when you start thinking, well, maybe this is a, a different kind of process than renal cell carcinoma. Yeah. Uh, the next one is the solitary fibrous tumor of the kidney, which is rare. Uh, we've got multilocular cystic nephroma which it says here is indistinguishable from multilocular clear cell carcinoma. And then we move into the renal pseudotumors. So we've got hemorrhagic or complex renal cyst, according to the Bosniak classification. You've got renal abscesses, pyelonephritis, lobar nephronia. I imagine that would be an important one to distinguish, Matt. That's correct. So like we were sort of talking about before, very aggressive renal cell carcinomas. Their sensory necrotic can look like abscesses. So it's really a matter of just keeping that in the back of your mind, your differential, and just you know looking at the patient's history and looking at the whole picture of the patient, whether it's reasonable to put that into the differential. Like if you have a young African-American patient with sickle cell trait, and they've got this thing that looks like a renal abscess and a negative urinalysis, yeah, you better believe I'm going to put renal medullary carcinoma on the differential. It's not common, but I don't want to miss it. 
the next one we have here is a renal infarct and then hypertrophied column of Bertum as, as another pseudo tumor. I guess that's yeah. more typical on ultrasound that we sometimes kind of confuse that. It can sometimes be a little tricky on ultrasound. Uh, and then the final category here is direct extension of neighboring tumors. So we have transitional cell carcinoma of the renal pelvis kind of invading out into the renal parenchyma, uh, adrenal tumors and other retroperitoneal tumors, liposarcoma or something like that. True. Uh, and that's it. We've made it to the end of the article. Matt. We should give ourselves a pat on the back here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've definitely learned quite a bit. The extra points that you've added in, the extra clinical context and your expertise has been been really useful. So thank you very much for joining me for this session. Of course. You are coming back to join us again at Radiopedia 2023 this year. Oh, you bet. I wouldn't miss it. No, you wouldn't miss it. Can't keep you away. I wouldn't miss it for the world. So you're doing a renal imaging workshop with Vicar Shah, right? It's my pleasure to work with him. It's gonna be. I think it's gonna be good. We've got all kinds of things lined up for for everybody here, coming from the whole gamut of renal pathologies, from stones to masses to you name it. We're gonna show it. That'll be great. So it's kind of the opposite to this. This is very much an audio medium. We're reading out the article, whereas the workshop is you get given cases, you scroll through them, and then Matt and Vikas will be pointing out the abnormalities in real time with you and having a chat in the live chat. So it'll be a much more interactive thing. So if you haven't registered for Radiopedia 2023 yet, get registered and then you can join Matt and Vikas for about a 90-minute workshop, which should be awesome. Now, I was also thinking it'd be great to have you back to do some more of these readful episodes in the future. Yeah. And if you'd like it would be great if you wanted to actually be the host of one or two of them yeah that actually might be a lot of fun i I don't bring a lot of renal or uh, abdominal imaging knowledge to the table here so it'd be great to have you talking to one of your colleagues about some of these other abdominal imaging topics reading out the article and getting getting to the bottom of things be great we could talk about esophagrams about that Uh, wax poetic about esophagrams for an hour i'm sure everybody would love to hear about that so Everyone would, but maybe maybe we'll workshop a few other ideas first. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, mate, and uh, and we'll see you again sometime soon. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is the this is the closest I could find to reggae music, Frank. What do you reckon? I think of all the genres, reggae would probably be the most distracting at work. Only because you couldn't help but speak in terrible pretend accents like you've just done. Yeah. But I, <laughs> I, I can see how it would be useful during a procedure rather than in the reporting room. I can see how that might work. I really like the idea of selecting a particular kind of music for a particular frame of mind, like always doing the same thing. It makes you switch into a particular mode really well. And and I do that with music for work. I've got a few tracks that when I really need to concentrate, it's like, this is my, the only reason I listen to this is when I really need to work and uh, I put it on and automatically switch in. So maybe for Matt, you know, Bob Marley is his Zen needle moment. Yeah, I'm the same. I have I have that, you know, Jimmy Sachs who I've mentioned before is really yes. just a weekend when I'm on call. I, I tried to listen to some Jimmy Sachs. How'd you go? I didn't go well. Oh. It's re- really not my thing. And this is someone who used to play saxophone and uh, really quite likes jazz. But Jimmy Sachs, it's a bit too Kenny G for me. Oh, no, no. That's disrespectful. <laughs> There's one where Jimmy Sachs is playing, I think, at like spring break or something, Cancun at a pool party. Look that one up. And if you don't like that, then we can no longer be friends. Is that my homework for this week? (laughs) Yeah, that's your homework (laughs) again. All right. How was that readful for you, Frank? Did we manage to hold your attention and teach you a few things along the way? I uh, I thought it was actually 
and you have to remember, I really couldn't care less about kidneys. Uh, but yes. I really enjoyed it, actually. And it was like, oh, yeah, Good. I remember that. No, I think it's a, and it's such a low stress way of revising something. For me, I found it really easy to prepare for it because, you know, I just clicked record and started reading. But actually, as the host, while I was doing it, I actually found it very hard, like to balance the the reading part and the chat part. And, you know, you're always thinking, am I chatting too much? You know, is this taking too long? So, yeah, I actually found it quite stressful, to be honest. Mm, I think the extra bits and the discussion around it is what's really uh, most beneficial or what I enjoyed listening to the most, listening to you and Matt tease bits apart. And I particularly like the idea of uh, noticing parts of the article that could be improved. And I already know that we've gone and, and tweaked a lot of those parts already. Yeah, there were some bits that I, that Matt changed afterwards. And I've also, we're getting to it in a moment, the association with sickle cell disease mm. and sickle cell trait wasn't actually in the associations section of the article. It was just in the pathology section. So I've added that in to the association section. That must be why I didn't know about it. Good excuse. Yeah, you did. That was the that was the one you got wrong. So let's go to that, actually. So the fake was the paraneoplastic statement. So yes, 25% of renal cell carcinoma patients do get a paraneoplastic syndrome, but the most common are hypercalcemia due to that parathyroid hormone-related yeah. protein and hypertension, and they both occur in about 20%, whereas the polycythemia due to EPO is less common, only in about 5%. So that's why that one was the fake. The other two are completely correct. So the medullary subtype is associated with sickle cell disease, particularly sickle cell trait, which is now emphasized a little bit more in the article. And the low T2 signal does favor papillary over clear cell morphology. Yeah, the sickle cell, it's an interesting topic because here in Australia, we basically don't have any. Yeah. And so it's not something we come across very much at all, even though we read about it a lot. Um, but it really highlights the differences in demographics and how if the textbook is written for one particular audience or by a, a clinician that's used to a particular demographic, certain things are emphasized, whereas in other areas, we don't see it. In the same way that we don't have very much TB here, whereas in many of mm. our neighboring countries, it's endemic. So yeah, it is interesting. But being a very global website, obviously, we need to make sure our articles... Our articles absolutely need to. Yeah. So it's hard from our perspective in Australia to make sure the articles are as relevant for everyone around the world. That's why we need editors all across the world. And we do. We mentioned that Matt could probably read the newspaper and it would be enjoyable with his voice. So I did invite Matt to to come up with some future Readful episodes and to host them himself. What do you think of that plan, Frank? Yeah, no, that would be great. I'd like that. We'll see what he comes up with. Hopefully they'll come through the pipeline soon. Uh, all right, let's wrap this up. Frank, how can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylord and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback. We genuinely want to hear from you. And the funnier they are, the more likely they are to be read out on our next hostful. And if you enjoyed the readful format, then please let us know if you didn't like the readful format, then also let us know because it will guide what we do in the future. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can, of course, become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. And don't forget that doing so, you're helping us not only keep the lights on, but make sure that our conference and our courses are all free to everyone from 125 low and middle income countries. And what else can people do, Frank? This is the bit I have to say for for 
Your wife is the official wife of the podcast, I think. We don't say her name. We don't say her name. We just say the wife of the podcast. The wife of the podcast or she who must be obeyed. (laughs) You can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Okay, let's sign it (laughs) off here. So we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Over to you, Frank. Do it, do it, do it. Stay rad. Oh, that was very tentative. (laughs) One more time with emphasis. Stay rad. (laughs) Oh, see you, mate. Bye. See you next week. See you later.